Great. Well, today we're starting a four-week series in the book of Isaiah, looking at what are called the servant songs. Now, Isaiah is a really long book in the Old Testament, and Isaiah is a prophet used by God to speak his words to a generation that continued to rebel against him. I would think it was a pretty thankless task, to be honest. Uh, In uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this is the whole book is his vision that he received during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he was actually a prophet through four kings, four reigns. Uh, so they say he was, his ministry was probably about 60 years long, and it was 700 years before Christ, so around the 700 B.C., No doubt Isaiah was sustained by the powerful call that he received in chapter 6. So I do encourage you to go home and read Isaiah chapter 6, an incredible vision that Isaiah has in the temple. And then he gets this call, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. And he gets some pretty amazing prophecies, one of which we're going to look at today. Now, I've called this sermon The Spirit-Empowered Living Word, uh, and I'm really excited to unpack for you uh, what I mean by this and what we see in this first servant song, which comes in Isaiah 42. And there's some really beautiful and striking imagery in the book of Isaiah. And actually, there's also some dramatic examples of God's scathing attack on idols. So before we get to our passage today, I want to look at the fact that it's very much framed in a conversation about idols. The practice of idolatry is just a massive battleground uh, with the people of Israel. And I just want to read a couple of verses. We haven't got the words for them. I just want you to listen to some of the things that God has to say about this. So chapter 41, the chapter before the one we're going to be looking at, he says uh, in verse 21, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? He's challenging the idols. Tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that you may know, we may know you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. So in that day, we are talking about idols that were made, that people would craft and then worship. And God's saying, they can't tell you what happened before. They certainly can't predict the future. They are worthless. Now, if that wasn't uh, clear enough, what God thinks about these idols, the other side of our passage, Isaiah chapter 44, let me read you this from verse 16. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. You've never seen the book of Isaiah like this before, have you? Uh, From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, 
Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? So this is where God's coming from. It's a pretty scathing attack, pretty humorous, really, I mean, and, and a fairly good point. Um, you know, you can just imagine they are warming themselves from this wood and then cooking their food, and then they're turning some of it into an idol and worshipping it. Where has it all gone so wrong? So just before we come in, in fact, just the last verse before we get into our passage, then we do have that. See, they are all false. This is where he's coming into land. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. So before I launch into our passage, I just want to start from the beginning to just think, okay, we can laugh at that. We wouldn't make an idol today. I don't think many people would out of wood or something like that and start worshipping it. But are there different idols in our life today that threaten to take the place of God, that we may be tempted to put our energy and our hope into? God does not hold back on the subject of idols. There's no point to them. They can't predict the future. Their deeds amount to nothing. They have no eternal value. They cannot speak. They are empty. Or in other words, they are most definitely not spirit-empowered, not living word. Enter God's chosen servant. Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Does it not take your breath away? It should. What a passage to reflect and meditate on. There is so much richness here, and I can't possibly do it justice in the time that we have. But I do believe there's some key themes that God would, would have me pull out today for us to focus on. You may have heard of the five W's of writing, the what, where, when, who, and why. Uh, well, also there's five W's and one H, which is the one I'm using. So my focus today is on the what, the who, and the how of this passage. So we'll look at what the servant's mission is, who he is, and how he's going to do it. 
So first of all, what? The mission impossible? Justice to all the earth. Why have people turned to idols, I wonder? And actually, if you look not just at what we read in the Bible, but at different cultures where gods has been a part of their, their, their whole being, really, by and large, it's about our daily living. So there's gods of fertility, gods of the weather, gods of war. If we give offerings to the gods, we will be saved. If we appease them and keep them happy, everything will be okay. Ultimately, this is life governed by fear. I wonder if we can recognize any similarities in the idols of the modern age. Might fear motivate us to keep chasing our idols? Fear that the idol won't actually bring happiness? Fear of what's left if we let that idol go? The servant comes with a much wider agenda. It's about life on earth. It is. It's grounded in our experience as human beings, but it's wider than we can ever imagine. He will bring justice to the nations. Couldn't we do with that at the current time? But he won't do this through amassing an arm, army and bludgeoning his way through. No. Look at verse 3. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And in the process, he will not break a bruised reed nor snuff out a smouldering wick. Let's just picture for a minute a bruised reed... It's imagined by a riverbank, one that's just been trampled on by lots of people in their walking boots. It's bruised reed or a smouldering wick. Great images that are still relevant for us today. And they speak of being on your last legs. Almost finished. Cast off. Abandoned. The weak and broken are usually the first to be trampled on in battle. But this is God's upside-down kingdom, coming from a place of love rather than fear where the weak and broken are upheld and honoured, where faithfulness matters, not strength. I wonder if you need to hear that today. Perhaps you feel weak or broken. Perhaps life feels overwhelming. Our call is to be faithful to what we've been asked to do. Sometimes that can be really hard. Caleb has spoken of a long obedience in the same direction. Sometimes it can feel hopeless, especially with so much injustice around, whether that's a terrible injustice splashed across our screens in horrifying detail at the moment, or the many others who are weak and vulnerable, trampled on, bruised, suffering. It is clear, too, in this passage, the widening of who that justice is for. This is not just for the people of God, but he is to be a light to the Gentiles. So it's that widening of what the servant has come to do. So we've looked at the what. We come to the who. Who is this servant who will do this amazing work? Whose mission is justice, but whose posture is one of a servant, obedient even to death. Death on a cross and an act of injustice where an innocent man was sent to his death in the most public way. Because, of course, the servant that Isaiah speaks of here, who takes center stage, is Jesus. Indeed, Matthew quotes this very prophecy in Matthew chapter 12, thus unambiguously identifying Jesus as the servant. Who else could usher in justice on earth? This is no easy task. 
this can only involve the supernatural, divine plan of God. We are invited to follow our Lord and Saviour. We're also invited, as it says in verse 4, to put our hope in his teaching. So in his teaching, the islands will put their hope, to put our hope in his teaching. Jesus stands up at the start of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, and he announces that he has come to open eyes that are blind. He's come to free captives from prison. He is bringing out these prophecies from Isaiah of what he's come to do. And as John's gospel starts, another fabulously dramatic piece of scripture, he is the word. He is our living word. And we can indeed put our hope in him and the words which he spoke when he came to earth. Alleluia. This is good news indeed. In times of trouble, find strength and hope in this, the word. I want to draw out a comparison which we see in this section of the book of Isaiah between the Persian leader Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, who was known, and Jesus. Because in some passages around this same section of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is given a prophecy about Cyrus. He says that a leader is going to come with military might. He's going to rouse up armies. He's going to come with huge power. But he's also actually going to be used by God to bring the people back to Jerusalem. Now, we've got to fast forward 200 years. So this prophecy is happening uh, around 700 BC. We are now in like 500 BC. You've got to remember, in between that time, things are already pretty much crumbling. To be honest, there's already armies pretty close to Jerusalem. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah having a pretty tough time, and the northern kingdom has already been somewhat... Um, sort of fallen apart, really, from those people of God that were first settled there. So, eventually, Jerusalem is brought down by Babylon, and all the people are carted off to Babylon and weep there by the rivers of Babylon. And they have to stay there until a king says, you can go back. And that's at the beginning of Ezra. So if you uh, have been a member of our church for a while, you'll remember a series we did a little bit ago about uh, return, restore, rebuild, which was looking at the exiles coming from Babylon back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild the temple and the walls. And at the very start of Ezra, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, but also here in Isaiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he moved the heart to say that they could go back. So in Isaiah, you've got this kind of prophecy, you've got a double prophecy going on. You've got this prophecy about this leader coming to deliver the people of Israel, and that's exactly what happens. God uses Cyrus, who wasn't even a believer. God can do all things and more than we can ever imagine. He moves Cyrus to call the people and enable them to go back to Jerusalem. So he's something of a saviour figure in the story. And yet this is done with military might. This is about a physical deliverance back into Jerusalem and able to rebuild. A bit of a scary-sounding leader, actually, if you look at some of the verses in Isaiah. Note the juxtaposition of talk of Cyrus with Isaiah's words about Jesus. Because actually... Jesus is not coming in that military might. Jesus comes as a servant. But Jesus comes to bring 
that spiritual deliverance. We've just been singing about it. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. Even a great military leader like Cyrus could be used by God to help the people in their physical need. But they were still lost, still turning to idols, still needed to find their way back into right relationship with God. So Jesus is the chosen one in whom I delight. I hope you immediately get that picture of Jesus being baptized when the dove comes down and the voice comes. That absolute recognition that Jesus is my son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to establish justice on earth not as a military leader of power, but as a servant. What seems a paradox is actually entirely right. We see a reflection, I think, of that in history. Humble servant leaders who value the bruised bring their own quiet power and influence. It's worth pausing a moment before I get to the how. I think it's worth pausing to just reflect on the authenticity of the Bible. Uh, Gabriella goes to Millthorpe School for Music Centre, and she came out and told me in her classroom there's some big sort of signs up there saying, Is the Bible true? Did God, did Jesus die on the cross? And, uh, you know, it just made me reflect, just let's think about the book of Isaiah. So it was written 700 years before Christ. So he's sort of written over here somewhere. Um, And then he's predicting Cyrus, who, you know, at the time that he is prophesying, the Jews are still in Jerusalem, but he's prophesying how they're going to return. So he's kind of prophesying something that happens 200 years later. But he is also prophesying when Jesus will come. How on earth could a mere man know that? Let's remember that comparison with those empty idols made of wood. Here is a man who is bringing such an incredible prophecy that is noted in the Bible before Jesus is born. It's there. That alone, for me, is huge evidence that the Bible can be relied upon, that these incredible prophecies come true. As Jesus says, as God says, as we'll see later, I will do it. He's a promise keeper, isn't he, our God? So we've looked at what, we've looked at who, and finally, I would like to hone in on the... Ha- I can't see the clock anymore with the, uh, <laughs> with the uh, camera there. Okay, I, um, I'd like to hone in on how this mission will be accomplished. When I first read through this passage, God really spoke to me from the words, he will not falter or be discouraged. He will not falter or be discouraged. And I believe he wants us to examine this, and I pray he will speak to us from it today. I wonder if sometimes you look forward at the task ahead, and it just feels too much for you. I'm not sure how many people have seen Frozen 2, but there's a, there's a scene in there that for me just... As someone who's not suffered much deep grief in my life, it's a passage that just really helps me <coughs> see what uh, this is, kind of this whole sense of not faltering and being discouraged. So there's a scene where Princess Anna believes her sister has died. And because of her dying, her snowman companion, Olaf, uh, also flies away because he's created by Elsa. So she's suddenly alone. 
believes her sister has died. Then, of course, we have a Disney song, uh, but the lyrics are powerful. She feels the darkness of grief closing in. She sings, the life I knew is over. The lights are out. This grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. But a tiny voice whispers in her mind that she must go on, do the next right thing, take a step, step again, not look too far ahead. In other words, not falter or be discouraged and give up. And she picks herself up and she pushes forward toward a higher goal, looking beyond herself. Because it's too much, and I think for those who are facing deep grief, deep crisis, a really difficult situation, it is overwhelming, but we can just take the one step in front of us, and then we can look to step again. And perhaps that's all we can do at certain stages in life. But we are told that Jesus will not falter or be discouraged. And it's interesting, this covers both external acts, so not faltering is a physical movement, so just keep going, keep moving. But being discouraged is mental, isn't it? It's in your mind that you get discouraged. So for me, this is about you keep going, physically keep going forward, and mentally try not to get discouraged. We'll look in a minute about how. But what a breathtaking mission that Jesus had to put God's plans into effect, into full effect for all people, and to make the truth about the sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, known, to establish justice for all the nations, to be a light for the Gentiles. How could he not falter or be discouraged from time to time? Well, he is God, you might say. True. But when he came to earth, he chose to be limited as a human. Being rich, he was made poor. He was able to serve God in obedience and do amazing miracles, not in his own human strength, but how? Through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We must not lose that in the opening verse of our passage today. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Not I will inspire him with a vision and he will bring justice to the nations. Nor I will give him an army and a large budget and he will bring justice to the nations. The starting point isn't the doing. It's not putting in place a strategic plan of how to bring about this justice. Nor is it the servant's faith. Or obedience, it starts with God putting his spirit on him. That is where the ability to keep going comes from. Jesus does not falter nor is discouraged because he's empowered by the spirit, connected and tuned in to him. I hope I'm sure many here have had that experience. But actually, we know, don't we? When we're doing it in our own strength, we get burnt out, we run empty, all these things. But actually, if we just remember it's the Spirit empowering us, 
I'm sure there's many. I have lots of anxiety at the moment, and I get up and I just think, oh, it's quite unusual for me. Um, and sometimes you can think, well, I'll just focus on what I've got ahead. And you start to look out, look out all the things in my own world that I've got to do and do well and sort out and make them not forget and, and all the balls that, you know, that I'm trying to juggle. And, and then you look wider and you look at the awful situation in Ukraine and just how devastating it is. And it is even more overwhelming. So then you, the temptation is just to shrink it all back in, like, whoa, I'll just carry on with my next step. But actually, and we sang it in that song, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes to the giver of life. Yes, for me it is, it's lifting up to God and then carry on. We can't take on everything. All we can do is be faithful to what we're doing. Just as Jesus was, in faithfulness, he carried forth what he had been empowered to do. It's no different for you and I. So this then is the crucial difference between those worthless idols that are empty and the true God. That is what his people need to see. God says in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Two rights. The Israelites had seen God's glory and provision. He made a way through the sea. It says in um, chapter 43, verse 16, it says, This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. They know this is their God who came and rescued them out of Egypt. He's already telling them that he's going to rescue them again through Cyrus. Even someone who isn't acknowledging God, God can use. Never mind the fact that in verse 5 of our passage, he sustains the earth, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. How painful that they still choose to worship things that they've made with their own hands. They wouldn't do that today. All the our idols may not be built by a craftsman, but there are things we direct our vision to instead of God. Money, a particular relationship perhaps, the desire for a child, the big career. I believe God would say these two can become idols if it is there that we are placing our hope. If we put all our hope and faith in something of this earth, Eventually, it will crumble. It will leave us empty. Or as Ecclesiastes puts it, a chasing after the wind. No eternal value. We are called to hope in the living word. Even if we are bankrupt, bereaved, barren, homeless, out of a job, in the middle of a battle, fleeing war, we have to believe that this holds a message for our Christian brothers and sisters right now in Ukraine as much as it holds a message for us today. Don't we? Our hope must be in him, who is the only one who can save. And we place our hope in his teaching, of which there is so much here that we can take. So many things that we can remember, even things like just focus on today. 
Don't worry about tomorrow. It's there in the Bible. Let's just focus on what we need to do today. Rowan and I were recently up at a conference in Edinburgh. I love my job because I get to go and do work, but actually we get to do amazing preaching and, um, and worship. It's just fab. A guy called Andy Longway was preaching, and it was sort of two days after the invasion started, so it was very relevant to that, but actually it links totally with what I'm saying here. And he shared from Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, um, a pretty good summary of if we're thinking about Jesus' teaching, where we might put our hope. So he, uh, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. First of all, the hope, a biblical hope, which is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. It's believing that his promises will come true. It's believing when God says, I am with you, that he is. I will hold you, that he will. Then secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance, all that we receive by being children of God, the fact that the Father has a place for us with him in eternity, that we can have treasures in heaven. And finally, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, that goes back, doesn't it, to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit. That's where our power comes. A power that is the same that raised Jesus from the grave. Life in the new covenant as Christians is even more glorious than that which the Israelites experienced. As we, like Jesus, are empowered by the Spirit. And that makes all the difference. For it is when we are guided by the Holy Spirit within us that we find out our purpose in God, that we are given strength to walk in faith and obedience, that we will not falter nor be discouraged. As the band comes up, I want to ask you some questions. I'm just going to say that again. First of all, when we are guided by the Holy Spirit within us, we find our purpose. We find what he wants us to do. What he wants you to do will be different from what he wants me to do. And we find that as we rest and spend time listening to the Holy Spirit. But then he also gives us the strength to walk in faith and obedience to that call, so that we will not falter or be discouraged. So I want to ask you, where are you placing your hope? In Jesus' teaching, an example? Or is something in your life taken first place? And are you faithfully serving in the Spirit's strength? Or are you desperately trying to do it on your own? Life is noisy and pretty overwhelming at the moment, but we need to tune into the Spirit and with absolute focus, know where we are going, ensure we are going Spirit-empowered. We follow that great example. Our living word who impacts our present and is our hope for the future. Who impacts our present and is the hope for the future. 
God's chosen servant in whom he delights and puts his spirit on him for the task ahead. Our wondrous, triune God. God the Father, choosing God the Son to come and establish his justice and be a light, a living word, all made possible by the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah had the incredible privilege of receiving and speaking out this prophecy of hope for all people and all generations. What an encouragement to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy to build up others and strengthen hope and faith. To our God be the glory. Let's stand and sing praises to Jesus, our living hope.